This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, esteemed social researcher Dr Hugh McKay joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Australia Reimagined, Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society. And finally, I had author Bree Lee join me in the studio to talk about her new memoir, Eggshell Skull which looks at Bree's time as a judge's associate in the Queensland District Courts, as well as a complainant herself in the Queensland legal system. And you are tuned to 3RRFM. This is Uncommon Sense. And I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me now. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I think I've picked up a little bit of a head cold over the last few days, but I'm, no. you, know, you know, we're going to soldier on. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on this side of the booth. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, no, I'm, just, I'm avoiding it like the plague because everyone getting sick at the moment. It's not good. It must be that cold snap that we just had. Well, I've got a child and she goes to school and as we know, school is basically just a giant incubator. It's a petri dish. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yes. And another child on the way. Wink. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Very yes, exciting. Yes. It is exciting. I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. So... Ben, let's get on to federal politics. We can talk about babies another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a Productivity Commission report has just been released this morning. Perfect timing for this show, of course, which was the whole timing behind it. And uh, this superannuation industry is a $2.6 trillion industry, as I said before. And uh, these reports are part of the recommendations from the Murray Inquiry into Australia's financial system earlier, far a long time ago now, it seems. And, uh, and really, this is all about looking into the performance and transparency of the superannuation industry. What have they essentially found? Uh, not very good, basically. <laughs> I think it's a little bit like the curate's egg, you know, good in parts. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there are, there are, there are high-performing parts of the superannuation industry, which are mainly the industry funds. And then uh, there are some funds that are, can only be described as rip-offs, really, uh, particularly in the retail super fund situation. Um, the retail funds, a lot of them are high fees um, and low-performing. Um, and, of course, over the lifetime of someone who's in one of these funds, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that disappears from their retirement savings. It does. And uh, it is quite shocking to find out that a quarter of 74 funds which offer a My Super product, and that's kind of like the entry-level super yep, product, that's right. isn't it? That's meant to be the low fee and... The, uh, you know, no frills. No frills, default kind of fund. Yeah. yeah, a quarter of those funds, which accounts for 1.7 million accounts and 62 billion in assets, don't meet benchmark performance returns. So people are, you know, putting their super into these funds, hoping that their nest egg will grow and grow and grow. And in fact, uh, they are doing very poorly, not even mention, meeting a benchmark, a minimum standard really for performance in superannuation. Yeah, and I didn't really get a chance to look at what the benchmark is, but um, I'm assuming it's some kind of, you know, stock market index or some kind of, 
you know, very. Yeah. It's you know, what you would expect, presumably, for you know they usually um, utilize and and buy into those gold chip, the top, the blue chip <coughs> companies that are absolutely uh, likely to have high returns, so that there's that level of security involved, so that you would you know not be uh, at the mercy of the volatility in a stock market. Yeah, and we're talking about investment for your retirement. So, you know, you should be ticking along at what, at least seven, sort of seven, eight percent would be great, mm. wouldn't it? And some of these funds are doing better than that. Um, but many are not. Many are doing like four percent, which is, you know, per annum, not that great, really. No. So, you know, and, and that the problem is, of course, you have to pay your super. I mean, it's a, a mandatory system of savings implemented by the Keating government back in the 90s. Um, and that money disappears then into this sort of high fee industry where, you know, blokes in suits kind of cream off billions and billions of dollars of fees, uh, many of whom then live pretty pretty nice lives on the proceeds of those financial services. Uh, and, of course, you know, if you're unlucky enough to be in one of these underperforming funds, then uh, that's a that's a really big problem for your retirement. It is. And funny you mentioned men in suits. Uh, at the beginning, at the very infancy of the superannuation industry, it was dominated by women because it wasn't necessarily seen as one of those powerful gigs that uh, the men wanted to get in on. It's only in recent times that we've seen men uh, enter this sector and dominate over the women because there were quite a few boards that were almost all female at one point in time. Well, I didn't know that, Amy, but uh, yes. that, that's uh, completely consistent with what we know about <laughs> the patriarchy in other industries. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I, I didn't know that either until a couple of years ago and it was really interesting to know that uh, women kind of got elbowed out once it became prestigious to be part of this industry. And obviously that's why it's prestigious because uh, they're really skimming a lot of fees from people who possibly don't look into it. And one of the uh, particularly interesting things was that uh, the lack of transparency in the system is really significant. The Productivity Commission requested from 208 uh, superannuation funds, they asked them to provide information on their rates of return across all 14 asset classes that they offer to uh, people in their funds. And 71% of those gave no response on the level of fees and only five out of 208 actually provided that information about the rates of return. So there's this major uh, reluctance to provide any real information about just how much money these different classes of assets are making for people. Yeah, it's an absolute black box and, you know, and I think that's like like in many markets, you know, where there's not very much information for the consumer, then the consumer gets gouged. Um, we see that in healthcare and we see that in financial services. So um, if you are interested or worried about your super, I think there's a couple of rules of thumb that you can take. The first one is generally get into an industry fund. The industry funds seem to be the best performing part of the sector. Um, and that seems to be pretty universal. Um, secondly, look for a low fee product because fees are taken straight off the top of your savings. And so over the lifetime of your superannuation, fees are probably the biggest influence on what you're going to end up retiring with. Um, now, industry funds tend to have the lowest fees, which is another reason why they perform so well. And thirdly, I would argue um, you need to um, look at what the returns are and also probably, I think, 
um, get some advice, you know, not necessarily from a financial planner because, no. you know, they have some problems. But, you know, um, have, a look at, have a look at what the earnings of your fund are um, and, and compare that to what the industry standards are by, you know, looking at one of these reports or the Chant West guys um, do it. Morningstar is another sort of uh, fund rating uh, information service and a lot of that stuff's free but you know um, basically low fees is is the key. Mm, exactly as you said Ben industry super funds are performing very well and uh, in every year except one in the past 14 years they've on average outperformed retail funds by about one to two percent at least so that's uh, pretty sub- substantial when you think about the type of money that goes into superannuation just how much it is it's a huge amount and one of the other things that uh, is something to look into is a lot of people pay a lot of money to have insurance through their superannuation and uh, perhaps are unaware of what is included in that insurance and not included so it would always be smart to look into and ask Ask what is included when yeah, you're paying yeah, for definitely. these extra add-ons. <clears throat> so um, a lot of insur- a lot of super products offer a kind of default life insurance and um, income protection. And income protection. Now, I'm not against having insurance. You know, um, some people find insurance to be very, very useful to them, and and some people find it very good for peace of mind. Um, but also, if you if you don't need insurance, if you feel that um, it's not important to you, then you know you can absolutely opt out. And you can save yourself a lot mm. of money over the long run. And the other problem is, I think, for people who have multiple funds. So, you know, people who have um, worked in a lot of different jobs over their careers, if you haven't collected all your super and dumped it into one fund, then you're paying fees on multiple funds of super. And that's going to eat away your savings very quickly. So, you know, get your super trace and look for all those you know, missing bits of super that you might have and try and get them all consolidated into one account. Yeah, you can easily do that through the ATO website. Yeah, it's it's getting much better. You know, and that's before we get into all the problems of the super system, like the hospitality industry, restaurants and cafes who are simply not paying people super, Mm. um, freelancers and people who are getting paid on their ABN you know, who probably are in fact just, um, you know, fake contractors, sham contractors. So there's there's big holes in our retirement savings system, you know. I think actually if you look at the, the long run history of superannuation, it was meant it was meant to be a kind of top up for people's pension when they get old. Um, it's not really taking much pressure off our pension, believe it or not, numerically, despite the $2.6 trillion pool of savings. Most of the benefit of superannuation goes to the richest 20% of people. So it's yet another one of those examples of our tax and transfer system where the majority of the tax concession and the majority of the benefits seem to go to the richest people. Exactly. Ben, this is um, what we've been discussing is Labor's uh, proposal to reduce superannuation tax concessions, uh, which was a big issue at the last election. It was all about um, reducing wealthy people's ability to uh, siphon off money that is into their superannuation that grows and grows and is not taxed at um, the same rate, the income uh, rate that you would have if you were, you know, earning a very high income. It's it's a really simple and easy way to avoid tax. 
Absolutely. And the richest people in our society obviously have good accountants and they're very good at taking advantage of those various loopholes and flaws in the system. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it it's completely inequitable because the way that it works is that the wealthier you are, uh, the more of your income you can transfer into your super and the less tax you therefore pay. So, yeah, it would be great to see some reform on that and Labor's made some you know, modest, um, modest efforts in that in that regard. The coalition's done nothing, of course, because <laughs> their entire philosophy is is really one of rewarding the rich, um, or at least the the upper middle classes and above. Mm. Uh, so there is quite a stark difference on this kind of tax policy stuff between the major parties. There is. It's quite nice for once to see some differences, and Ben. Kelly O'Dwyer, the Minister for Revenue and Financial Services, has been out this morning talking about this report. She's very supportive of the Productivity Commission. She thinks this report is fantastic. And in fact, uh, she has latched on to one of their suggestions, which she can't commit to, of course, um, but may consider implementing, which is to have an independent body assess these funds and come up with the top 10 that people could um, use as default accounts so that when they don't necessarily opt in um, or select a certain super fund that they at least are being um, default uh, selected into super funds that are high performing, that don't have high fees and uh, obviously that will be um, something to look out for but it would of course cost money to set up such a body. Well, I wouldn't think it would cost that much money. Um, I mean, I think that would be, surely that would be just a, a case of looking at people's returns and putting it up on a website. Well, it depends whether you can gain access to all that information, as we said, Ben, given that they're so reluctant to provide information. Ah, right. Well, perhaps you could pass a law to force <laughs> them to give up that information, being the financial services minister. You could, Yes. You could, couldn't you? But the uh, coalition's not necessarily all about legislation and regulation. They cut red tape all the time, don't they, Ben? Well, it depends on what part of the economy you're looking at. They're quite keen on uh, regulation of the trade union sector. Mm. Um, A lot of new regulations and regulatory bodies being introduced there. So true. Yeah. There's a lot of irony and uh, sarcasm going on at the moment. Uh, Yeah, sorry. Uh, (laughs) If anyone can't pick it up. Yeah, so... Look, I mean, you know, um, what they do in this space, I think, will be interesting to see, but I I can't see Kelly O'Dwyer attacking the big problem in superannuation, which is the universality of it, the fact that there's whole bunches of people in our system who don't get paid enough of it, particularly women, particularly people working in low-wage, insecure workplaces like cafes and restaurants. And, of course, the other big problem is the fees so you know um there is actually pretty straightforward ways to solve this which is to to basically crack down on those Mm. fees to regulate them to make sure that you know for example you could be a cap on them exactly you could legislate to make a cap on fees you know i'm sure that the guys in the big towers in the middle of the city will still find a way to make a bit of money out of that um but it wouldn't wouldn't be you know the free-for-all that particularly retail super funds have been absolutely and Finally on Super, I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Bronwyn King, who does great work in Super. 
convincing super funds to um, remove all their investments in tobacco. And uh, so you can look up tobacco-free super and find out which super funds do not invest in tobacco because that's one really important thing she found as an um, oncologist, radiation oncologist, that her own super fund was investing in tobacco. Wow, and there you go. Everyone yep. at Peter Mac had yep. a, uh, a fund investing in tobacco. Amazing, yeah. I mean, I think... One thing that I've, I've found very interesting over the last five years or so has been the rise of ethical investment. Mm. It's become something of a juggernaut um, led by the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has been very active. It's the, the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, more than a trillion dollars of Norwegian oil money that's invested on behalf of the Norwegian government and the Norwegian people. And they've been pretty active in cracking down on what they see as unethical investments. And they've pulled their investment out of, you know, tobacco and arms companies and and certain fossil fuel companies. And and we're starting to see more of that in Australia. And I think that's actually having a really interesting and important impact on the Australian capitalist economy, you know, in very subtle but important ways, we're starting to see ethical investment really bite, particularly Mm. for unethical companies. Well, it is also a simple thing that consumers do is just to make a choice not to invest in those funds and to invest in ones that do. Think about that. Yeah, but you have to have enough information to know. I mean, would you know what your super fund invests in? Most people wouldn't. You would have to look it up or call them and ask. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and, and that's the sort of thing that the the ordinary punter, they're busy with their lives, they've got work, they've got family, you know, it's not easy to take the time to ring up someone and then go, and what are you going to do, by the way? You know, if you have to change your super fund, that's a big hassle. So, you know, we don't make it easy in this country to, to move our financial products around. And that means that competition is low. And that means that fees and profits are high. <laughs> As we've seen in the Banking Royal Commission. Exactly, exactly. Um, ben, we now have a date for the by-election and there was a little bit of controversy around the date because it falls on the ALP's national conference, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, good trial by the coalition there. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very a dirty trick, I think, is, is the yeah. best way to describe it. So, yes... Um, that's correct. We're going to have a by-election for all of the, the latest round of parliamentarians found to be dual citizens. And um, it's the, what is it, 28th of July? I think it was. Let me just check. I thought it was the 25th. Hang on a bit. Um, at any rate, it is the same date as the ALP, well, what was going to be the ALP was, yeah. National Conference. Um, a very big event. Oh, no, 28th, you are right. Saturday the 28th. Yep. Was it going to be in the Adelaide Convention Centre? And it isn't a yearly thing. This is it's like twice a... Twice a year, every two years, yeah, yeah, yeah biannual. Yeah. Yes, so massive, massive disruption for the Labor Party. They've decided to actually cancel the conference, um, which would be quite expensive because a whole bunch of people obviously had booked airfares already. And we're talking about 2,000 Labor members and trade unionists and parliamentarians from around the country heading off to to one place to debate Labor policy. So it's a very important meeting for those who are interested in what, you know, the next Labor government might be interested in doing. Well, it's how the official policy is decided. That's right, yeah. They actually have debates over, you know, their platform and, um, yeah, and so it was promising to be quite controversial because, of course, there was a move on by the left of the party to try and have a debate about refugee and asylum seeker policy. And, uh, you know, that's obviously going to be highly controversial within the Labor Party because Mm. there's a number of people 
inside the Labor Party that are not happy with Labor's current policy of supporting mandatory offshore detention and Manus and Nauru, the prison camps that Australia has set up. Uh, and so, yeah, now the Labor Party's had to cancel that conference. We don't know when the next one will be. Uh, Jed Carney was on Q&A last night. She said, yeah, we don't actually even know what the new date will be, but they'll, they'll try and have another one now. And they I think- said it might be next year. Yeah, possibly they could postpone it, you know, and I think that will be very, that will be very interesting too, because mm. you know, the, particularly for the asylum seeker debate, that's a very live debate within the Labor Party, and also factionally, there's a a very fine balance between the factions in the Labor Party at the moment, with the right nationally having the just the majority, um, but the left is pressing to try and take over the, the Labor Party really, and that would change quite a lot of policy if that were to happen. It certainly would, and uh, we'll have to, I guess, see what happens from that. But uh, it does give these MPs and the candidates a lot more time to, I guess, campaign and solidify their um, profile within these electorates. And certainly uh, it's been raised that Georgina Downer needs a bit more time to settle into (laughs) her electorate of Mayo. Well, yeah, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know that I thought Georgina Downer would do very well in Mayo and I got sort of contacted by a few people over from South Australia saying that uh, it's not quite as simple as that and yeah. actually that, uh, that Rebecca Sharkey is quite a popular local member over there in Mayo. She so- probably is a true local member though. It's very rare to have a member that represents the interests of their electorate above a party. And it's quite an interesting electorate. So it's a sort of peri-urban, also rural electorate. It includes Kangaroo Island, the Adelaide Hills, um, a fair bit of sort of country South Australia, as well as the sort of outer suburbs of Adelaide. So it's quite a complex electorate. And um, it will be really interesting to see see what happens there. Obviously, uh, Georgina Downer has great name recognition with her dad holding the seat for many, many years. And the Downers are a famous political family in South Australia going back many generations. So um, it'll be interesting to see if she can continue on the family business. Yes, it will be very interesting. Um, that's one of many interesting contests. And of course, uh, that two of those contests won't be contested by the Liberals. It will be between the Greens and Labor. Yeah, well, I think actually the most interesting one is Longman up in Queensland. Um, and that will be contested by the LNP. And that will be a real litmus test for how we're going in the federal election because that's a marginal seat in Brisbane. Mm. And um, that will very much be a guide to, you know, how the major parties are going in that crucial kind of swing territory. Queensland's always a an important electoral battleground. It is, it is. Now, Ben, there are some ethical dilemmas that have come up in the last week. Uh, I don't really want to talk about the content, but I want to talk about the principle about it. Um, Barnaby Joyce and Vicky Campion, his new partner, um, have sold a story about their relationship to Channel 7 for $150,000 and... This is something which it brings up an ethical issue in politics, doesn't it? To sell a story or an interview as a politician. I mean, that's, and it's a substantial amount of money that is apparently going to be held in a trust for uh, his new son, Sebastian. So this is something which, I mean, it, it brings up a lot of questions and a lot of liberal and national MPs have said, actually, it's not on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think parliamentarians should be getting paid by the media 
for media appearances. For any appearance on any subject, wouldn't it be? It's, set, it's setting a precedent. Yeah, and, and it, it is a conflict of interest, obviously. Um, so I think, you know, it, it just, again, it brings up how loose, how lax our anti-corruption regime is in this country federally. You know, we don't have an anti-corruption watchdog. The rules have always been very lax um, and this is why politicians are constantly pushing the envelope because there are no hard and fast boundaries there so yes I, I agree I think it's unethical mm, it is it is Ben uh, we'll have to leave it there for today uh, but thanks for coming in to chat about federal politics and I'll see you next week hopefully yeah, thanks Amy see you next week that was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to talk about federal politics. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, this is George Megalogenis, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Yes. Thanks, George. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And that reminds me of a great conversation I had with George Megalogenis last year. I also had a great conversation with Hugh McKay last year. And I'm so excited that he has been able to make it into the studio to talk about his new book, which is called Australia Reimagined Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society. Hi, Hugh, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Amy. It's a great pleasure. It's so wonderful to have you here because when I spoke with you last year on the phone, this we were talking about an oration that you mm. uh, gave about how the state of the nation starts in your street and it's all yes. about what you do in your own street, in your own neighbourhood and community and it really is the beginnings of this book. Mm. It, well, that's right. That, that, that Preparing that oration uh, really did sow the seeds for what what became this new book. Yeah. Mm. And when you gave that oration, what kind of response did you get to the original idea? Um, well, I can only say overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was astonished. Uh, I shouldn't have been astonished because I think we're at a very interesting stage in Australia where a lot of people are just waking up to the fact that we've been neglecting our street. We've been mm. neglecting our suburb, our neighbourhood, our local community. We've been focusing on other communities, which are terrific, online communities, workplace communities, friendship circles, all that stuff is important. But there's a magical thing about the neighbourhood, um, which I think we've been overlooking. In fact, uh, I think the, 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 sen- the, the two big facts about contemporary Australia, which, which really are the, 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 the two ideas that this book rests on. One is that we, we have become a more socially fragmented society uh, and there are lots of things contributing to that, mm. r- rate of relationship breakdown, increasing mobility of the population, uh, shrinking households. Every fourth household now contains just one person. Increasing reliance on information technology which seems to bring us together but actually makes it easier than ever to stay apart. Uh, So all of those things contribute to uh, more social fragmentation 
and the greater risk of of social isolation. There, there are, mm. there are, and there are consequences of that, of course, for our mental health. There's a, a, a senior leading American psychologist last year at the annual convention of the American Psychological Association said that social isolation is now a greater threat to public health than obesity. So that's the price we're paying. And I, I mean, so, so one of the facts about us is we're more socially fragmented. The other fact about us is we're more anxious. Mm. We're more depressed. Um, we're more emotionally insecure. And those two things are inextricably linked. I mean, if you, if you, if you fragment a society, if people become more concerned about themselves as individuals and have less of a sense of themselves as members of local neighbourhoods and communities, um, well, because we're herd animals, uh, being cut off from the herd is is dangerous for our mental health. And so make us a more fragmented society and what will happen will become a more anxious society and we have an epidemic yes. of anxiety right now. Two million people, according to Beyond Blue, two million people last year were suffering from anxiety disorders and another two million either depression or some other form of mental illness. That, that's a, if, if these illnesses were visible, mm. uh, we'd be much more concerned about how to, how to address the problem, but they're silent and invisible. Yes. Well, because it's experienced as a very isolating and lonely illness. Yes. A lot of people can't even admit to themselves or perhaps to others that they're yes. suffering from something that might be anxiety or depression. Yes, that's right. It's, it, there's a real, there's a real uh, vicious circle in this because if we become a bit more fragmented, if we lose the sense of being integrated with a neighbourhood or a community then we start to feel more socially isolated and more anxious. And the more anxious we feel, exactly as you say, Amy, the less likely we are to connect, the more, the more likely we are just to sort of go into a little huddle and become preoccupied with ourselves. So, I mean, that's, that's another consequence of, of a more socially fragmented society, even if it doesn't get to the stage of an anxiety disorder we do tend to be a more selfish, more self-absorbed uh, society concerned about our material prosperity, uh, our personal happiness, not so concerned about the needs of people around us. Yes, there was a, a really great quote that I bolded in my notes because it was so striking to me, so I want to read it out. Uh, you say that anxious people are more likely to become obsessive about their own personal comfort and well-being, their own personal rights and entitlements and their own personal priorities. Correspondingly, they are likely to become less concerned about the rights, the needs, the priorities or the well-being of others and less trusting of them. Anxiety leads us to confuse self-indulgence with control. And if you can't control the big picture stuff, I'll concentrate on the stuff I can control. Mm. And this is not suggesting that, um, you know, people with anxiety are horrible people. This is just mm. a natural consequence yes, of of having something which does mean that one focuses inwards, that one, um, as you say, cocoons oneself to protect oneself from mm. things that are isolating, that do induce anxiety within you but the more that you um 
are feeling isolated, the more and more anxious you feel, as mm. you say. It has mm. that cyclical effect that mm. means it's so hard to break. Yes. And, I mean, what are some of the things that you think break that cycle? I think uh, this whole problem is a wake-up call to those of us who are not suffering from anxiety, who are not, for example, living alone. And, and people who live alone aren't necessarily lonely. Lots of people love living alone. Yeah. Um, but the risk of loneliness is increased, mm. particularly among older people if they find themselves unexpectedly living alone through bereavement or other circumstances. So I think, I think there's, a, there's a huge responsibility. Once we realise that we are in fact, a social species, that we, we actually do need each other, that we're all in this thing together. So we might as well figure out how to get along, how to make these communities work because we all benefit from that. I mean, we, we need to recognise my, my health really does depend on the health of the neighbourhoods and communities that I belong to. So I think we've got to start reaching out more to people who are on the fringe, in the margins, especially people who are living alone or suffering in some way. Now, there's some responsibility on people who are themselves isolated because the best way to solve the problem of social isolation is to solve someone else's problem of social isolation. Yeah. Um, and, but, but it's hard. It's hard to break the cycle and I think the rest of us have to move in and be a bit more open, be a little bit more accessible um, to people who are potentially lonely. I think the magic ingredient, the word we haven't mentioned, Amy, but the magic ingredient in all of this is compassion. Um, and it, it en ended up well, as, as you said, in the, at the top of the conversation. The subtitle of the book is Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society, because I think that there are lots of ways of dealing with anxiety, but probably the most effective antidote is compassion because compassion and by the way I should say what I mean by compassion mm. because I'm not talking about sort of bleeding heart emotional yeah. uh, f strong feelings of love and affection towards someone in need I think it's got absolutely nothing to do with affection it's nothing to do with our emotional state I think compassion is like a like a cool mental discipline that any of us who've understood what it means to be human can adopt. And it's the discipline of saying, because you're human and we're all human, the only rational way for us to treat each other is kindly and with respect. That's what I mean by compassion. Now, if that's our modus operandi, it does change everything. It, it does mean that uh, we're not going to be isolated. We're not going to be utterly preoccupied with whether we can get that outdoor sink built in the barbecue area, which seems to be the latest sort of <laughs> high, high fashion uh, um, compensation for our anxieties. Yeah. Um, but but all, all that's required is that we say, well, whoever I meet, including people I don't like much, and including people I definitely don't agree with about religion or politics or music or whatever it might be, but we're all human. I mean, it, it, on the surface, it looks as though the most interesting thing about you and me is the differences between us. 
But actually the most significant thing about you and me is that we're both human. We have our common humanity and we are far more similar than we are different even though there's a big age gap and you know, maybe lots of other gaps if we started exploring each other's lives. But all of that is relatively insignificant compared with the fact that we are humans at the moment sitting in this studio together but sharing this planet. Uh, and, and what that meant, if, if, if the species is to survive and if local neighbourhoods and communities are to thrive, this is, this is like the high-octane fuel that drives the machinery of social integration, social cohesion. Mm. And it requires a conscious effort, doesn't it? it? Yes. I think that's a really important point, Amy, because when you look at all the ways in which our society is changing at the moment, most of the social changes are pushing us towards fragmentation, uh, uh, encouraging rampant individualism and materialism, you do have to resist it. You do Mm. have to say, hang on. And often parents start to see the effect of this on their kids and that's a trigger for them to say, "Mm, I don't know if I like the way this is going. Uh, Maybe we need to handle things a bit differently. But it it, it does require a conscious effort to say, no, remember compassion. Remember that that's, that's what's going to save us because if, if we become more and more and more fragmented, more and more selfish and preoccupied with our own concerns and so on, it's a pretty ugly society we'd be heading into. It sure is. And you do say that some of these areas of fragmentation are really areas that are they've become kind of a coping mechanism for people. Some of the things like materialism, Mm. like, as you said, focusing on the smaller things that one can control, like, as you've written, finding the right yoga teacher, getting a a good sink for the outdoor area. You know, The perfect latte. Exactly, the quest (laughs) for that. um, You know, Instagramming the perfect latte is a higher challenge. I mean, these are things which um, it's easier to focus and be preoccupied by the small smaller, more minute things that we think we can control that will provide us with short-term happiness or gratification. But it's a bit more confronting to think about the bigger picture. And you highlight that there is a bit of a disconnect between the way people see their own lives versus how they see Australia and how we're going as a nation. Yeah. I think that's a deeply disturbing feature of contemporary reality but it does i mean you you put it beautifully then i mean it does actually follow from all this other stuff um yes some research that's been done over the last couple of years shows that when australians are asked how they feel about their own lives and their own future the majority are optimistic when they're asked about how australia's going and australia's future the majority are pessimistic now how can how can that be you know how can you think well, I'm okay yeah. if you're thinking actually our society is not okay. So I think part of the, part of the challenge, and this is an, it's another aspect of the discipline of compassion, I suppose, but part of the challenge is to say, look, okay, there are big, there are big issues in Australia at the moment. We're, we're losing faith in our major institutions, politics, um, the church, the banks, big business, professional sport, 
the mass media, the trade unions. Generally speaking, people don't have the same level of respect or trust uh, towards those sort of institutions that we once had. So we could be wringing our hands about that. That's another subject we could talk about. But, Or we could be wringing our hands about youth unemployment or the plight of asylum seekers in offshore detention centres or Aboriginal reconciliation. There are lots of big things um, that need attention. And you and do say they actually make us quite anxious too. Yeah, they, they contribute to say nothing of global warming and the degradation of the planet. Um, Part of the problem is we think about all those big things and we can then easily say, as as you suggested a moment ago, it's all too hard. Mm. Let's narrow the focus. Let's turn the focus inward. You know, what what can I do to increase my pleasure uh, or to make sure that my kids are in the best school or that I have found the perfect latte or the perfect yoga teacher, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not mocking those things. These are all natural responses. But that's all looking in the wrong place. Uh, you know, th- those things are not... It, it's true that we can't single-handedly change the world or transform federal politics or any of that. The big breakthrough, I think, comes when we say, well, partly because we're not getting the sort of leadership we might want from political or religious or commercial or cultural leaders, actually, it's up to us. It really, as as we said in our conversation last year, the state of the nation really does start in your street. It is no significant social movement ever started by someone at the top waving a magic wand. Well, not a good started. one. <laughs> no. Perhaps the authoritarian well, ones. Oh, sure. Yes, we've, yeah. seen, we've seen some of the extremes exactly. uh, that have happened like that. But generally speaking, a positive social movement, maybe even a social revolution, starts with a few people saying it actually could be different, you know. If we started living around here uh, as, as if this is the kind of community we want it to be... That's the kind of community it will become. If we think neighbours should know each other, we better make sure we know our neighbours. If we think people should smile and say hello when they pass each other in the street, well, maybe I'd better start setting the example rather than just going with the flow. There's Mm -hmm. a a fascinating um, story has come out of the UK. Uh, Unfortunately, I only learned about this after I'd finished the book. Um, But in the town of Froome, spelled F-R-O-M-E, if people want to look it up, um, in Somerset, a GP uh, came to realise that many of the health issues that her patients were suffering were due to their social isolation um, and feeling of exclusion. And so she got together with the local council and just a few other community leaders and they launched this thing, which sounds very clunky, but they launched the Compassionate Froome Project. And three years after they launched it, uh, a study was done to see what the impact of it was. And across most health indicators, there had been improvements. The most dramatic improvement was also the most unexpected, which was that emergency hospital admissions went down by 17% in that three-year period in Froome, while across the county of Somerset, they went up 
by 28%. Now, what was this miraculous intervention? What, what, what was Compassionate Froom all about? Well, it was really creative, extraordinary stuff like reach out to your neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> make, if someone's living alone, make sure you go and knock on their door occasionally see if they're okay. Mm. Uh, get connected, join a choir, a, a community garden, a men's shed, a book club, anything to get to get to be become part of networks within the community so you're alert to what's going on. Um, be the sort of person who does smile and say hello to strangers at the bus stop or anyway, this might just be the moment when that person needed someone to smile at them and acknowledge their existence when they were perhaps feeling a bit bleak or even a bit desperate. So it wasn't some radical thing. It was just let's let's turn Froome into the kind of town that we'd all like to live in because it'll its hallmark will be compassion, a spirit of kindness and, and respectfulness towards each other. And, you know, the effects are um, dramatic. Uh, the health effects, you know, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not just people thinking, oh, this is nice, but actual health indicators have improved. So, you know, this is, you, you, could, you could have compassion at X, Y or Z wherever you live without necessarily giving it a label, but just a group of people. So, and there are, I mean, in the book I've, 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 I've described nine or ten cases where people are doing wonderful stuff all over Australia and in some other countries that I've, little initiatives that I heard about, but just doing doing things that have the effect of reminding people that they are neighbours. It's a special category. You know, it's not like family, it's not like friend, it's not like colleague, but we are all neighbours simply because we live in a human setting, in a social context, and that creates an obligation on us and we pay a price when we don't discharge that obligation. Yes. And one of the things that resonated with me is that you said this idea of compassion isn't about the idea that we need to just donate more, more money to charity or you know, only focus on um, those who are impoverished, although they are one element we should certainly mm. focus on. As you say, it's about just saying hello to mm. a neighbour or if they're unwell and have uh, the flu to make sure that they're doing okay or get mm. them a meal, yes. find out if they need help to get to the doctor. Yes. Simple things that make a huge difference and presumably have a ripple effect yes. because it's paying it forward. Yes. I often do see that that does that kindness goes forward to others. Yes, yes. The r- ripple effect is a lovely term, isn't it? Because um, it's a nice picture mm. in, in your mind of how the ripples do go out in a pond. Um, I think that's true. I think, you know, the, the ripple effect, the multiplier effect, acts of kindness do multiply. When we start setting the example of being concerned about other people, being respectful, being more charitable in our general attitude, p- people pick up on that because we recognise that as the good, the good stuff about being human. I mean, we can also be pretty ugly. We can be very competitive and violent and vengeful and all that terrible stuff we're capable of, but we don't admire that in each other. What we admire is goodness. We admire 
the, the positive stuff. So setting the example is a, is a, is a you know, it does register as a bit of inspiration. Mm. It goes on. Oh, I, I noticed Amy was chatting to that. You know, she seemed to be bringing home the shopping for that old lady who lives at the end of the street. That's nice. You know, I should do more of that sort of stuff. Mm. And it makes me think of um, my own situation and others that I've observed in the past. And you do say that we shouldn't tend towards nostalgia, but I do sometimes think that there are some traditions that would be great to bring back, Mm. not because we should live in the past, but because Mm. they were just great things. And you did bring up one of them in the book, which I thought was you know, really important is the idea of having street parties mm. and having occasions where mm. we all get together and uh, and obviously you don't have to sit on the road to create an, a traffic obstruction. <laughs> but, you know, these are really simple events and moments that one can easily organise mm. to get to know your neighbour more. And mm. because it seems that um, we don't really know our neighbours as well. I used to, we were very close friends to my neighbours in a coastal town and we're still best friends with them even though they've moved to another town. Right. Um, so we have that really close connection. But the connection we now have you know in this 21st century is definitely not as close i've Mm. i've recognized and it's those Mm. really person-to-person interactions that Mm. i've noticed have become less and less frequent Mm. so i was just i wanted to draw on some of the research that you highlighted from edith cowan university which found that only 35 percent of australians say they trust their neighbors and you say, well, surely this doesn't mean that 65% of our neighbours are untrustworthy. Oh, of course, that's right. It's highly unlikely that yes. that would be the case. Yes. So, I mean, that is a, a really stark figure, though, that we don't trust our neighbours, that we think, you know, we have to lock the doors, we are more alarmed about security, which mm. does increase anxiety, Mm. just even having heightened security measures creates Mm. that level of fragmentation, as you say. Yes. What are some of the things you think that could enhance our connection beyond those person-to-person interactions? Do you think things like street parties, things like Mm. um, organised, I guess, groupings and activities could be the things that we used to do perhaps mm. might be useful now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your, your little alert about the dangers of nostalgia, that's appropriate. We don't want to think, oh, gosh, life was wonderful in the 70s or the 50s or, you know, gosh, I was there in the 50s. It wasn't yeah. wonderful. There were lots of things wrong. And even you were though saying there were lots of things right. alcohol abuse and yeah. a whole range yeah. of things that were yeah. perhaps more Women heated. being second-class citizens, lots of things wrong. Mm. But... I, I agree with you. We don't have to. It's not nostalgia to look at some aspects of our past and say, actually, that was very important for building the level of confidence, trust, comfort, security in local neighbourhoods. And why don't we bring that into 2018? It doesn't mean we want to wind the clock back. It just means that was good. We've lost it. Let's bring it back. So th- this, of course, doesn't mean I'm not suggesting. I mean, you, you were lucky that you had neighbours who became such close friends. I'm not suggesting that neighbours have to be f- best friends. In fact, one of the things most people say about well-functioning neighbourhoods is we're not in each other's pockets. Mm. We respect each other's privacy, but 
we know those people are there when we need them. And it's very nice to be able to say good day when you're walking uh, to the shops and you see a familiar face. So, yes, things like uh, occasional street parties, not not once a week, no. but maybe a couple of times a year. Um, uh, th- uh, things like uh, going habitually to the local coffee shop, uh, becoming a regular so you start to see other people that you recognise, joining in local activities. Local libraries have become a tremendous community hub for this sort of thing. They don't just run school... They don't just... They're not just places to read and borrow books. They run school holiday programs for kids and adult education classes and all sorts of things. Uh, get involved with that. Do join a choir or you know, some other local book clubs, some other local community things so that you feel as though you are part of this functioning community and you're then alert uh, you can't help knowing when when needs arise, uh, when people will need your attention. So, and and even the street party can be done on a on a more um, relaxed basis. One of the things that I um, came across in researching the book was um, uh, in a suburb of Sydney, a, a woman who'd moved in with her family had moved into an apartment block, and she realised. No one in the apartment block seemed to be speaking to each other. They, they, you know, they kind of avoided each other in the car park and they didn't... When she started talking to people, she realised they didn't know other people in the street. So she, with a couple of friends, just put a little note under everyone's door and a sign in the local shop windows saying, we're going to have a picnic on a particular Sunday a couple of weeks hence. Uh, just bring your own food and drink and we'll just get to know each other. And 40 or 50 people just from those couple of streets uh, joined in and the numbers keep growing and they're doing it once a month now. Uh, and they're talking about having, you know, kids doing musical items or people giving little talks about things they're interested in. It's become a bit of a local institution. Really simple and no-one's obliged to go and you can come when you like and leave when you like. But it just means there's a transformation because those people now, they recognise each other and it's not only each other. That It's, it's like the ripple effect. Uh, once you feel as though you're part of this community, then even when you see a stranger, you're much more likely to say hello. Mm. And I think it was great that you raised and you've referenced now that we are organically linked to the whole and that the society's problems are our problems. Mm. Society's pains are our pains. Yes. They're shared struggles. Yes. Yes. And this idea of a communitarian um, way of being is something which is not foreign in other cultures. And it wasn't that foreign in Australia, but no. it seems so much more foreign now. Yes. Yes, how did it happen? Like, I mean, I know you've listed these kind of fragmentations, but how did mm. we kind of sleepwalk into it? Because it feels like it just happened. Yes, well, it did. And sleepwalked into it is a very accurate way of describing it. Because most of the changes that have been reshaping our way of life are not things that were done to us. They're things we've done. I mean, we have become more mobile. We're moving house on average once every six years. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why we do that. 
Um, we've, we've got almost universal car ownership. It's all very comfortable, convenient. We come and go in our car, which means there's less footpath traffic. Mm. We didn't think of that. Um, the divorce rate, about between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce. Now, none of those people who are divorcing would want to get the divorce rate down because they want to split. Mm. So they're going to split. So we just have to recognise there are consequences of that for their families, for their friendship circles and for the communities they're moving in and out of and for kids if there are kids. A million dependent kids now live with just one of their natural parents and half of them are involved in regular migrations between the two parents. So that's all of those things... Um, are, are things we've done. Uh, we've become busier. You know, who, yeah. I mean, we've, we've enshrined busyness as a kind of virtue. You know, we, we even greet each other differently now. We say, how are you going, Amy? Busy? As though, are you dead or are you busy? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even people who've yeah. retired, yeah. it's now absolutely obligatory. You've got to say, oh, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever found time to go to work. Yes. Well, it's, this yeah. is crazy stuff because if we're really so busy. Obviously, we, we don't have the time or the energy to devote to community engagement. And the other big one in all this, of course, is information technology, which we've mm. embraced. It hasn't been forced on us. You know, we've only had the smartphone for the last 10 years. Um, but look how it's changed our lives because we've so enthusiastically, voraciously consumed it yeah. without recognising what it might do to us. So all these things are positive but the cumulative effect can be at least partly negative. So in the case of the smartphone and information technology in general, we just have to realise that the heavier your use of these devices, the more likely you are to feel lonely and anxious, which is very paradoxical, but that's what the research is now telling us. Mm. Because, of course, we're taking human presence out of all that exchange of information and that's in the long haul that turns out to be bad for us well you do raise an excellent point which is that body language and particularly eye contact Mm. is just so vital and i think we forget that even just talking on the phone although we have a a vocal tone and timbre that people can pick up on, Mm. you're still missing out on really important things like eye contact and face-to-face interaction. And I just feel like that's something that I miss a lot Mm. with, you know, my friends. I certainly know what they're doing in their jobs on LinkedIn. I know, you know, that they just had a baby because they've got pictures on Facebook (laughs) and I can tell that they just went on a hike somewhere beautiful in uh, Anglesey or lawn, but I don't really know how they are and whether they're doing well because I haven't been able to check in with them personally Mm. and have that really nice interaction. And Mm. I thought to myself, um, for myself coming up to becoming 30, you know, thinking about all of my friends that I made in university, how do we maintain and establish relationships not just with our neighbours but make sure that we don't lose our relationships with our friends and also our families because Mm. if we don't have that strong unit that we feel supported then we do feel more anxious as Mm. you say that we are less compassionate then to others Mm. like our neighbours it's all a kind of uh, cycle as you said Mm. it all affects each other and it's a bit like a domino effect yes 
Yes, uh, it absolutely is. And once you realise what you've just realised about your friends, I mean, knowing, seeing on Instagram the new baby is not like cuddling the new baby. No. And seeing a wonderful walk uh, in lawn is not like being on it or even catching up for coffee afterwards and saying, well, tell us what it was really like. You know, the photos were great, but photos aren't always the full story. Um, So I think... Like that's dawning on you. It's starting mm. to dawn on a lot of us. I think that that this this horse has bolted, um, and we can't turn the clock back. We're not going to we're not going to abandon the technology, but we can start to live a bit differently with it, use it as a as a slave rather than a master, and make sure it, it occasionally just monitor <clears throat> what's happened in the last week. How much of my non-working time has been spent with a device compared with face-to-face with other human beings? And if that's getting out of balance, then that should the red flag should go up, and we should say, "Hang on, uh, let's let, let, say to your friends, you know, no, no more. I'm not going to send you another text. I'm not going to do another no. post until we've met. So when are we going to meet?" Yes, exactly. And you say that, you know, we have a two people in a household often. Um, they may have children. They are both working. And so they have less time to devote to many things. Mm. So their time is spread very thinly. It means that you need to make more conscious choices and prioritise your time around this kind of framework. If you value compassion, if you value mental health, if Mm. you value a society that isn't based on economic uh, KPIs, but upon, you know, those sometimes immeasurable factors like feeling connected and valued and heard Mm. and uh, just supported, Mm. then this is something that we can all do Mm. and it's really simple. Yes, yes. Uh, It's so simple to describe. It just needs, you know, we just need to get the momentum going. And I really hope we do. And one of the things I wanted to... Uh, finish this interview on was to think back about some of those great things like the street party but also like those tidy towns initiatives like keep australia beautiful you were talking about people in the book who would just go around with the rubbish bag when they were walking the dog and pick up the bits of rubbish because they wanted to live in a town that was really nice and tidy you know to take that initiative to not wait for politicians to fix our lives because they're clearly not going to yes and if we wait it's just going to be too late that's right. In fact, I think you could say I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, recommend this as a long-term thing, but at least in the short term, I think you could say our feelings of disillusionment and disappointment in leaders, particularly political leaders, could actually be quite good for us because it leads us to say, well, actually, it is up to us if we want society to feel a bit different from the way it feels. Let's start making that happen. Exactly. It's really, um, I don't like the word empowering because it's a bit uh, lame in a way, but it's very, it does feel like we have the power to affect change. And we do. We absolutely Mm. do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great reminder. Mm. Thank you, Hugh, for joining me. And it's really a fantastic book. I'm just so glad that you've written it and been able to explain what's behind it to everyone here. Thank you very much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was social researcher and author Dr Hugh McKay 
Ayo, and he has written a book, Australia Reimagined, towards a more compassionate, less anxious society, and it's out through Pan Macmillan, Australia. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. This is Johan Hari, the author of the book Lost Connections, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR. I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio author Bree Lee, who has written a book called Eggshell Skull, a memoir about standing up, speaking out and fighting back. And Bree joins me in the studio. Hi, Bree. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really wonderful to have you. And, uh, and I'm so excited to be talking about this book because it was so compelling that I was just telling you I couldn't stop reading and, um, and I got through it so quickly. So yeah, it just is a testament to how beautiful your writing is and just how moving and gripping this story is. So congratulations on such a great book. Thank you so much. Can I ask, is it your first book that you've published? Yes. So yeah, such a big achievement. Yeah, it feels pretty surreal. Uh, It took two years, which is, um, uh, yeah, I I don't know what, I don't think anything is normal in book world. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really exciting and a bit terrifying now to be touring it because you spend most of your time as a writer by yourself in your room, um, you know, alone in solitude working on this thing. And then it sort of feels like all of a sudden you like chop your arm off and it's out there in the world growing on its own. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really exciting, but never wracking. Yeah, absolutely. So let's head into the content of this book. Bree, this is really a memoir. It's about your life, but it's not just about your life. It's about the many other people you encounter and particularly during your career, your early career as an associate to a district court judge in Queensland. Could you share with us a bit about that job? And for those who are unfamiliar with the law, what drove you or led you to engage with the law at that level in that particular setting? Mm. So a judge's associate is basically a fancy term for a judge's assistant. Um, You are a personal assistant um, and kind of a secretary and you manage their calendar and their schedule and their administrative stuff, but you are also a legal assistant, which means um, each judge is different and each judge has their own associate. Um, But for my judge, I would sometimes proofread his judgments. I would help him with legal research. And also a critical component of the job is that you are in the courtroom keeping minutes of proceedings. Um, If it's criminal law, the associate is responsible from pulling jurors' names out of the barrel to impanel them for jury duty. Uh, You accept and mark exhibits that attended of evidence, um, all kinds of stuff. It's one of those jobs where if everything runs smoothly and you are invisible, then you're good at your job. And if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's a really uh, sought-after position. Um, It's entry-level position. Most people who are judges' associates um, are straight out of law school um, at university. Typically, the contracts are for one or two years. And after you're an associate, the idea is that um, you can springboard into almost any aspect of the legal industry that you want to because an associateship is such a well-regarded, coveted position. And, you know, you come with a judge as a referee. And I applied for it, um, uh, I guess, for the same reason that I even started studying law, which is 
um, I'd been exposed to those ideas and those themes for a very long time because my father was a police officer and a police prosecutor. And I was just drawn to the the world of the law because to me it just had such significance because you were at um, the point at which humans interact with each other in a way that creates conflict and you are trying to resolve that conflict. Absolutely. And so in terms of the role of an associate, did you ever see people in that role relish the role and want to stay there longer than one or two years? Or was some of the content just so difficult that it was one of those short-term roles for a reason? Both. Um, Even for a little while, I thought that I wanted to do it for longer um, because it's such a privilege. Um, I have a great amount of respect and, um, you know, like professional adoration for the judge that I was an associate to and I would, I could work for him for the rest of my life. Um, He's so, it's a real privilege to be spending every single day and doing a lot of traveling if you go on circuit with this incredibly intelligent person and doing that kind of really important work. But then, yeah, like you said, um, particularly for those of us who were associates to judges who did a lot of criminal law, some judges do mostly civil law, which is, of course, a lot about money and contracts. But the judge I worked for did almost exclusively criminal law, which meant a new trial and a handful of new sentences every week. And it was grueling. It really did come across that way. It was kind of a treadmill you couldn't really get off and there weren't that many moments of respite because from what it appears in in your book is that your judge particularly was dealing with child sex abuse cases, sexual assault cases, rape cases and these are disproportionately cases where women are the complainants and where men are the uh, defendants and so obviously that brings up a lot of gender dynamics, power dynamics in a courtroom and I wonder from your perspective when you were working in this role and you said you were taking notes and making observations, what were some of the things that stood out to you that perhaps got you emboldened or impassioned in some way about this issue more broadly, not just from your obviously your own personal story, which we'll get to in a minute, but in particular, what were those elements in in those cases and and the patterns that you saw that you noticed and that you wanted to pick up and focus on? Mm. So yeah, like you mentioned, um, I'd only been working in the job for about a week or two before I just started taking notes, like almost compulsively. Um, And a lot about court is extremely recorded. You know, it's all the audio is recorded. It is transcribed. There are official records, but I felt like nobody was bearing witness the way I thought um, those proceedings justified. And I thought that a part of the reason why I felt that way and what I still think is that it was because I was the youngest person in the room and I had not yet um, basically had the empathy not beaten out of me. I'm not saying that um, people who do that work for a long time aren't empathetic, but yeah, I was just significantly more shocked and outraged. Um, and, you know, you can't really maintain shock and outrage for too long in that industry before you, um, you know, if you can't survive there for too long unless you have an ability to compartmentalize. And I certainly didn't. And so I was taking these notes and in taking notes, um, like you said, patterns really quickly started emerging. So for example, um, uh, it's a problem where 
for a regular criminal offence, the rate at which defendants plead guilty is up at around 70% and that drops down to about 30% for sex and child sex offences. So the result is that the system is just clogged um, with defendants who don't want to plead guilty um, because either they are refusing to take responsibility for their actions or because they think they can get away with it and because so often they do. Um, And so unfortunately... um, accurately and um, my judge described sex and child sex offences as the bread and butter of the district court because just so much of that work is that content Um, and there were patterns even within that so it became monotonous to the point of offensive um, that it was so frequently mum's new boyfriend or the stepfather figure um, in a family's life often especially when we went out on circuit to regional and remote areas um, often the mother of the children and, and sort of just the family went in a situation of financial dependence on the male um, in question um, sometimes there were drugs involved um, not always obviously but it was just also really clear to me and then I went and researched and found that the facts backed it up that it was always um, almost always um, a male who was a member of the, f- the family unit or, or the close friendship unit of the family who was offending against either the young women or children in the family and that um, it happened overwhelmingly in a domestic setting without the use of a weapon, which means that you don't have any CCTV footage, you don't have any um, physical injuries to accompany the complaint of sexual misconduct and it makes it really hard for jurors to latch on to what they expect air quotes, evidence um, to look like. Mm. Because in this book, there are many cases where you highlight that really it's the complainant's word is the primary source of evidence. It's their memory, their word, their recollection of the events versus the defendants who may or may not testify and usually they don't. So that's also really a difficult thing to comprehend is that the jury's kind of presented with this one side of the story from the complainant and then they've got this gap of primary evidence or testimony from the defendant. How did that play out in those cases where the jury was really presented with this one source of evidence? Mm, it's tricky um, because there's a... You can take a matter, if you're a defendant, you can take a matter to trial and your two options are that you either simply put the prosecution to proof, which is where you plead not guilty and basically say, um, you know, I have a right to a presumption of innocence. I'm not going to say anything, but you need to prove it. Um, And then the other option is when you either give or call evidence, which is um, uh, quite uncommon, as you said. Um, So the defendants in these cases, um, often they're they will receive instruction from their defence solicitors and or barristers um, not to give evidence um, because it opens them up to cross-examination, which is a risk. And that's a risk that the complainant must go through but the defendant does not need to go through because, yeah, as I mentioned, they have a right to a presumption of innocence without having to put forward a counter case. And it makes it... Juries have a hard task and uh, juries get it wrong all the time. They often get it right, um, but it's not... great system. It's not a system I love. Um, And sometimes you would have a trial where it really did feel like there was a gaping hole of information that the defendant surely would have been able to shed some illumination on. Um, And other times you'll arrive to court and you know for 
like you know pretty well why they're not giving evidence and it's kind of watertight and you don't feel like there are any gaps because for example the complainant will have other witnesses to testify you know seeing the defendant come out of her room on that night or that yeah they went to get dinner but then they were gone for three hours when they came back stuff like that Mm. yeah it's case by case Yes, and you do write that it's so easy for them to say that her word alone, in air quotes, wasn't enough to overcome their reasonable doubts. The alternative is a little terrifying, that if one in five women are assaulted, one in five men might be assaulters. It is one of those very confronting questions which you return to in your book over and over, and this obviously brings forward a lot of your personal experience that you look around yourself, you're you know, jogging somewhere, you're walking home from work and you see these sites where you know crimes have been committed and you're questioning you know, how many of these people have committed an assault, how many of these people have survived assaults and have or haven't come forward. So I want to get to your story and how this all interrelates because you yourself when you were a child experienced a sexual assault or what is better termed in legal jargon and could you mm. correct me yeah no it's okay it's just yeah it's um yeah when I was a child um I had two counts of indecent treatment committed mm. against me but yeah most yeah. people would I guess refer to it as um yeah uh, sexual interference with a child yeah and that's something which it was so hard to see you go through all of this because your job is bringing you into contact with the very thing that you have you know experienced as a very young person and and there are a lot of ways that you try and cope to get through this job because you're constantly being reminded of this experience. Can you talk about how you felt day to day where, and it seems like your judge in particular had a disproportionate number of cases that were involving children, how, how that really felt for you to, to, to try and get through the day when other people weren't aware that you yourself had really gone through something really significant? Mm. So, yeah, I didn't tell anyone um, for a very long time. And at the beginning of the year, um, it was, yeah, my first day of work. It started with a bang, had to um, proofread a judgment about some really horrific child sexual assault. And um, at the beginning, I would read that content or even in the early trials and sentences would hear that um, witness evidence in front of me and I would feel a a physical sense of discomfort. Um, I would feel a queasiness in my stomach. I would feel a kind of irritation that made me want to twitch and fumble um, at the very beginning. And a little part of me knew that there was something going on, but for a very long time, for a few weeks at least, for maybe a month or so, I just sort of thought, well, this is horrific content. Of course I'm uncomfortable listening to it. You know, you'd have to be a robot to hear this stuff and not have some kind of response. Um, But then it got worse and, um, you know, drank more, smoked more, Um, It wasn't until I was writing the book that I realised how much um, disordered eating habits I had gotten into because I just had this really quickly building, growing sense of self-loathing and resentment and discomfort within my body. And 
it was just manifesting in all kinds of really crap ways um, because I hadn't told anyone. Um, on one instance, um, I thought I might try to talk to someone and in the associates training at the beginning of the year, we'd all been told that we had three free um, completely confidential counselling sessions. And so I finally sort of plucked up the courage to put that phone call in and then in a almost Monty Python-esque scene <laughs> found out that um, none of the counsellors were available in out-of-office hours in locations I could get to, but they could give me a slip that I could take to get my judge to sign to give me permission to have time off work. And it was a joke. And so definitely felt like um, there was no sort of support infrastructure, even though I had a wonderful partner and, and um, loving parents and pretty good friends. Mm. It's so surprising to think that there's this encouragement to have counselling or to not be afraid to talk about mental health and then make it difficult for anyone who wants to become a lawyer to to seek help for it. And that is a wider issue in the legal profession, I know. It's so awful. The whole profession is just holding each other up with a fine veneer of lacquer. It's so much drug and alcohol abuse in that profession and so many undiagnosed mental health issues and they're just a buttload of type a personalities full of anxiety um who can't yeah really can't voice or articulate um any sense of struggle because they won't you know um get promoted yeah and what is very heartwarming in this book is that you have so many people around you who are just beautiful people Mm. like you said your judges uh, Amazing. It, yeah, I just <laughs> I fell in love with him. He's just yeah. so beautiful. He's yeah. so kind and wise and thoughtful and considered. It's just one of those people I can see why you looked up to him mm. and why you would want to be around someone like that and just soak it all up. Mm. But also your parents and your boyfriend mm. are constantly such a source of comfort and nurturing. And it's something that strikes me is that if you being in such a wonderful environment in terms of the people that love you are struggling with this, what about the people who are in a bad environment who don't have a family? that cares about them. It must be really difficult, not just for you, but for all those people who don't have a a support system around them. Could you talk about that and and the kind of family situations you were seeing and whether you were empathising with these people and how you felt about it? Mm. So something that occurred to me throughout the entire process, um, which was, you know, when I was working my courage up to going to the police to making a complaint and then during the huge investigation um, and onwards was that it was so hard for me and I almost didn't make it through and yet I had everything that a complainant could have. Um, I knew when I finally came forward, I had, you know, I was pretty sure that um, my partner and my family and my friends would believe me and they did. Um, I was... Um, in a economically, you know, financially secure position. Um, I, I wasn't have to, I didn't have to worry about food on the table mm. or rent. You were well um, educated. Absolutely. I knew how the legal system worked. I was, I'm literally qualified to <laughs> practice law. I had everything and it was still so hard and so scary and took so long. Um, and there were so many times I nearly, um, you know, threw in the towel um, and I just don't know how we expect anybody to to go through that without all the resources that I had. Mm. Um, and that's a really important part of the book um, is for me acknowledging that. Um, and yeah, just so often 
cases in trials in particular because in a trial compared to a sentence, you know, you get to hear so much of the stories. So often, um, particularly the mothers of these children and sort of young women, um, you know, you're talking about like sort of 13-year-old girls who um, aren't really capable of legal consent who are so frequently victimised. And the mothers are financially dependent on these men. Um, There were some instances where the men would bring drugs into the house and get the mothers addicted to the drugs um, in order to basically be able to offend against their children and have access to their children. Um, A lot of uh, manipulation, emotional and also physical and domestic and family violence, um, just basically controlling environments where... Um, by the time it came time for a defendant to offend against a woman or child, they were already so afraid that, you know, they didn't need to use a weapon. Mm. And one of the facts that you bring up that I found really shocking, um, but then again, when I thought about it once more, I thought, actually, it's not that shocking. You write that a 2011 report by the Australian Institute of Criminology clarified some commonly held mistaken beliefs about sex offenders and that it's a common misconception that all child sex offenders are pedophiles. The subheading went on, as you say, when in the majority of cases, sex offences against children are opportunistic and carried out by people who are also attracted to adults. And they commonly take place in the home without the use of a weapon. And the perpetrator is usually an older male known to the victim. So these are people who look normal. They Mm. look like a regular person. As you have written in this book, there are many of these offenders who do get found to be guilty and obviously some who were found not guilty who perhaps were, mm. that appeared very av- an average Australian male. They do have relationships with adults. Absolutely. And that misconception is um, something that I've been really passionate to talk about on the book tour and I'm really glad you brought it up because it was just always a problem when jurors were presented with the possibility of having to find a man guilty of, a, you know, a child sex offence, um, what they think of when they think pedophile is, for example, um, you know, one of Australia's most famous pedophiles, Dennis Ferguson. They think of someone who is compulsively and um, exclusively attracted to prepubescent children. Um, But actually, the vast majority of sex offenders, that's not them. They're not actually, you know, pedophiles the way um, people expect them. They are offending against um, mostly young women, um, sometimes boys as well, of course, um, but mostly just young women who are underneath the legal age of consent where they just want to have intercourse for the sexual gratification and they think that if they offend against that particular person at that time that they can get away with it and they don't mm. care how old she is or, you know, obviously how terrifying and horrific that would be. Um, and it's just it's the few times that the defendants would get in the witness box Um, basically one of the many plot lines that a defence barrister would take them through is that they were a regular bloke, just like you or me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it's, it's, it's so frustrating that we have all of these myths around what actual, even what actual um, complainants, what actual victims do um, and what actual pedophiles are, and these are all fabrications. Yes, and one of the other things that you talk about is that sex crime trials have higher rates of conviction where weapons are involved because there's an obvious assault or violence mm. that you can you can find the weapon or you can see a real injury on someone mm. and also where people of colour 
are the defendants. And you talk about the Indigenous incarceration rates being so high in comparison to the number of Indigenous Australians that are in our population. Particularly going out into Queensland, into regional areas, you must have been confronted with a lot of those situations where people, Indigenous Australians, um, white Anglo-Saxon Australians, other uh, multicultural Australians, in terms of those experiences, when you were encountering these race and class disparities, how much do you think they're disadvantaged by the legal system, the, the actual processes and rules and, and also just the biases of a jury system where you're reliant upon these average Australians selected from the community to pass judgment mm. on evidence? Yeah, hugely disadvantaged. Um, and I'm glad you picked up on class as well, because if you're talking about access to the legal system or access to justice or even a complainant's ability to keep trucking through with a complaint, money um, or class has so much to do with it. Um, and the other thing is that that bias against um, race, against class, um, against gender starts way before they even get in front of a jury. So one thing that's really frustrating is that the highest point of case attrition, and that means that um, when, you know, um, complaints are dropped, um, is at the police investigation stage. And the police get to choose, um, you, you know, within certain parameters, which cases they refer to the Department of Public Prosecutions and which ones they drop. Mm. And then once it gets, if it gets past the police, it gets to the DPP and then they, that's the second highest point of case attrition where they're just dropped. And the DPP in particular make decisions about what matters go to trial or not to trial based on how successful they think they will be in front of a jury and yeah. the presumptions that they make about the presumptions that the jurors will make. And so a DPP officer um, knows that it's statistically more likely that a man of colour accused with a sex or child sex offence mm-hmm. is likely to be found guilty. And so not only is that potentially more likely to happen at the court stage, but it's also just more likely that that man will even get in front of a jury than a white man to be in front of a jury. Um, it's a huge problem. Um, after one event I had, I speak really um, <laughs> with a lot of passion and frustration <laughs> about um, how defence barristers will veto certain people based on um, spare-of-the-moment profiling when I would call their names out of the barrel. So um, the associate picks random names out of a selection in a barrel and prosecution and defence each get eight challenges. Um, And I saw it many, many times that defence would challenge uh, women in sex and child sex offences and they would challenge young people because typically young people have a much more progressive attitude towards, for example, matters of consent. Um, Also, young people are much quicker to judge, typically. Um, And I had a woman come up to me after an event and say, it's not fair that you criticise defence barristers for using the tools they have available to them. Um, You know, just the other week, I was defending an Indigenous Australian man who was accused of rape. And of course, I did everything I could to make sure that there weren't as many as possible white women on the jury, because white women are terrified of black men, which is true. Historically speaking, um, and what the stats show us is that the more white women on that jury, the more potentially likely that black man is to be convicted Mm. and so um you know that's one really specific example of how it's not even just about what ends up 
happening in the jury room in terms of representation of jurors and deliberation. It starts way back at the police stage mm. and then at the DPP stage. Yeah. And so I just want to pick up on your experience because it was really interesting to highlight just how tenuous these kind of things were. As, as you were saying, the Department of Public Prosecutions or the DPP need to pick up your case from the police who have taken your statement or addendum statements and that kind of thing and they decide whether they'll proceed. And there is a lot of to and froing at the beginning of your case. You had to put in so much courage and effort just to make the statement, jump through all these hoops and emotional times, really trying times. And then you still have to, I guess, prove that you have a potentially successful case because we only have so many resources that we can put into these cases. In terms of your uh, situation and particularly looking at how it worked in a legal process or system perspective, how frustrating was it for you to have that stop, start, stop, start, come to court, no one turns up except you or your side? You know, how, how difficult is that? Because it seems like there's a lot of mind games going on as well as just disorganisation. and Yeah, H- hugely frustrating and really, really disheartening that this thing that is so awful for you to carry on your shoulders is so insignificant to the system that people can just forget to show up. <laughs> so insulting. Um, and just, to be honest, not good enough. Yeah. Um, so, and there's not really yeah. a, any consequences, as no, you said. No. So um, it was pretty unique. Um, I made sure that I attended all bar one mention of my matter as it went through about a year at the magistrate's court level um, and I felt confident enough to do that because I knew that system Mm. but it was still really terrifying for example when you rock up on ground floor of the mags court um, when I you know look at the screens to see what courtroom my matter is going to be heard in amongst you know 50 other matters that day because magistrate's court is like so busy I stepped into the elevator and didn't know if the defendant was going to be there the man who had sexually abused me as a child Mm. didn't he could have stepped into the elevator right after me and I'd be stuck in an elevator with him because if I want to hear my matter in public I just have to get thrown in with the whole lot of it whoever might be in the building at that time yeah there's no support infrastructure for complainants to be able to bear witness to their own matter being played out in the system and the other frustrating thing um definitely as you mentioned a lot of mind games so with um the defendant in my case Uh, before he was even charged, um, as soon as the police knocked on his door and let him know that he was the subject of an investigation, he hadn't been charged yet, um, he went and hired a solicitor and a barrister. And he basically proceeded to um, use as much money and sort of tactics as he could to protract proceedings. Um, With hindsight, um, my personal opinion is that... um, Part of one of the tactics that they used was that the defence team would feed information through that, oh, yep, he's going to plead, he's going to plead, it's fine. He'll The phrase was fall on his sword. And then a month later it would be like, oh, absolutely not. I can't, you know, no, the, um, you know, this evidence or this piece of testimony is absolutely useless. I can't, you know, this is a frivolous and vexatious claim. No way, take it to trial. And what just happened over two years is that my heart was just like wrenched in and out of my guts so many times um and they knew the truth which is that the longer you can drag it out the more likely the complainant is to drop off that you can shake complainants off because that process is so horrific Mm. 
I just want to cover off on two more things before I have to let you go. In terms of one of the cases that really stuck out for you and that was that pivotal moment that you saw someone experience this great lightness, this lifting from their shoulders of a burden that they'd been carrying for years and years. It was one of those cases where, uh, rare cases where a man was in fact the claimant and a man was the defendant. Could you talk a bit about what that experience was for you witnessing the outcome that he received and also why that was so important to be the moment that spurred you to take action at that time? Mm. So I had been, um, that was I think about halfway through the year or a little bit past halfway through the year as an associate and I had been um, on some really, really cerebral level thinking maybe I would do something about it, maybe. Um, and then we were in Warwick and we had a trial listed and it was it had a one to two day estimate, which is very short for a trial, um, normally they're around three days. And it was it ended up being the shortest trial that we ran because there was basically no evidence apart from the complainant's testimony. And it was a historical child sex offence case. Um, there were no, I think maybe there was one other witness, um, but really no corroborating testimony from any other family members to say that the defendant was even like living in the house at the time. Like this was a real shaky case. Mm-hmm. And um, the complainant was a man and he... Um, he was successful. He got um, guilt. The the jury found the defendant guilty on all counts. Um, it's a separate question that I would take a long time chatting about if I think that would have happened if the complainant was a woman. Um, mm. And that's something that I really grapple with in the book as well. Um, but basically, the thing that really got me was that at the end of the trial, um, the complainant has the opportunity to write a victim impact statement. And mostly that victim impact statement will be typed up and submitted and it will be handed up to the associate and the judge who read it and consider it. There are very specific rules about what a victim impact statement can and cannot be used for in terms of sentencing. But at its heart, it's just an opportunity for a complainant to feel like they've been heard the way they want to and for them to be able to express to the court um, the effect that the defendant's conduct had on them. And in that case in Warwick, um, it was the first and the only time that I saw a defendant stand up in the box and read their victim impact statement out to the court. I just get emotional even thinking about it. Um, he talked about... He talked a lot about, obviously, the hurt that that had caused him and the horrific effect it had had on his life. But what actually really got to me was he talked about the Im- incredible relief he felt and the closure he felt at finally being able to move on from this and then when he stepped down from the dock he fell into his wife's arms and she caught him and I just thought um I think I have people who would catch me and so I just I was sitting in the courtroom (laughs) trying not to cry because Mm. you have to be an absolute stone wall as an associate um but I just I decided right then and right there that when I got back from Warwick I had to do something about it and then I would tell people and make a police complaint and then I did Mm. it the next week. And it's such a moving picture that you paint in that moment and it's obviously still something that is moving today and a really important moment for you. Mm. One of the things I would love to know to close out this discussion is in writing this book and revisiting it all, that all these experiences, the notes you'd been taking, the reflections you'd have, what are some of the things that you really hope that other people who perhaps have 
had this experience as a child or as a teenager, even in their adult life, and they're carrying this burden with them and they're really struggling with it. Are there any things that you were hoping that people might take from this book that would offer them some sense of comfort or a similar experience as to, you know, I guess the experience you had with that man who who was um, supported and, and had that experience of lightness at the end? Mm. Yeah, I would say... Um you never know how strong you are until your metal is tested, obviously. Um, but if you close your eyes and picture whatever for you is the worst case scenario, for some people that might be that their partner or parents don't believe them. For some people that might be um, having to go to trial and testify regardless of the outcome. For some people that might be a defendant being found not guilty. Mm. If you close your eyes and picture that worst case scenario and you think that you could survive that then don't wait another day because I feel on the other, being on the other side of my matter now, regardless of the outcome, I feel absolutely invincible. Mm. It's the best thing I ever did. And um, all of my relationships with the people in my life who came up to meet me and had my back have been solidified in a way that, you know, barely anything else could have achieved. Um, and I have that relief and that closure that that man in Warwick spoke about. Um, so, yeah, if you think you could survive it at the worst, then then go for it. Mm. And just finally, in terms of the title of the book, it is a really impactful title and it has a very interesting legal background. But why did you pick Eggshell Skull to encapsulate this story? Because, so the the term is a legal maxim that stands for the idea that you must take your victim as you find them. So if person A strikes person B and person B has a skull as thin as an eggshell and so they die, person A is not allowed to say that person B wasn't as strong as a, air quotes, regular person. Mm. You know, we're responsible for the entire ramifications of our actions and we don't mm. get to pick and choose how the victim is offended by our actions towards them. And I became interested in that topic during that year because I was interested in, like, all of the questions we've talked about, how to defendants pick their victims, why defendants are the way they are, why they think they can get away with it, why they do and don't plead guilty. Mm. But also I became really interested in how I should have had every sort of weapon in my arsenal and that unfortunately for the guy who offended against me, he couldn't take his victim, he couldn't, you know, pick and choose his victim, he had to take me as he found me, which was a, like, a person with literally, uh, I'm a lawyer and I had entire family support and I was not going to back down and I just liked the idea that you could take a legal maxim that is normally used to represent victim's weakness and maybe turn it into a signal of a victim's strength. Thank you so much Brie, it was really wonderful talking to you and uh, congratulations on this book and also I'm so glad to hear that you're feeling invincible because you look invincible. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. And that was my interview with author Brie Lee and we were talking about her memoir which has just been released. It's called Eggshell Skull and it's out through Alan and Unwin and Brie was the inaugural winner of the Kate Cat sorry, Cat Musket Fellowship which is offered through Express Media and it's for young writers who um, are doing some great work and identify as female or non-binary. So do look up that fellowship as well and uh, and thank you again to Bree Lee for being just so uh, honest and uh, open and really generous with her experiences.
And if any of that discussion um, brought up issues for you or queries or concerns, um, or if you're struggling yourself with any of the topics that we discussed, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you could also call 1-800-RESPECT, which is one 800 which is a 24-hour support and counselling line, which is provided to people impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse. So um, there is that support there and please um, do seek it out. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. If this interview brought up any questions or concerns, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you can call 1-800-RESPECT.